wow. I'm not used to this kind of crowd. Hey, everybody. I'm Barbara. I'm a grateful recovering member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Wow, this is a growth experience. Now, I belong to the Monday morning meeting I have for 21 years. I still make the coffee, open the doors an hour early, set everything up. This is one service I wished I was just opening the doors and setting the coffee up. But, you know, my sponsor says when you're asked to do service in Al-Anon, you do. And so this is my fourth time to be up here, and this is enormous, especially around all you wonderful miracles in AA, because you are miracles And I just want you to know I love all of you. I want to thank the Board of Trustees and Betty for asking me to come up here. But I first want you to meet the love of my life and my very best friend, my husband, Jack Corkle. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't have this fabulous fellowship. And everybody in this world could use Al-Anon, let me tell you that. I'm supposed to tell you what happened, what it's like, what happened, and what it's like now. So we may as well start in the very beginning. I really don't remember this, but I was born January the 26th, 1938, in Dallas, Texas. And you don't have to be figuring, I will be 70 in January. (laughs) Don't calculate, that's it. And I was born into a very, very loving family. My mother, my father, my grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. There was no alcoholism in our family. There wasn't. But there was dysfunction. But this dysfunction didn't bother me until I was eight years old. And I'll explain all that. When I was born in Dallas in 38, we lived in little settlements, I call them. There was, and I am the child. I, my grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi. We're Orthodox. We were Orthodox Jews. That never bothered me until I moved away from our little area, because the Irish lived here, and the blacks lived here, and the Italians lived here, and we lived here. And so everyone I grew up with, and everything that we did, we all did the same thing. So I wasn't any different than anybody else. And then I came to be, and I had fabulous grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles. I mean, it was a wonderful childhood, not knocking my childhood. I didn't know any better. Just like somebody said at Blackstone last year, when I was five, my mother and daddy told me I was Jewish, so I guess I'm Jewish. So that's, that's what happened. But when, when I was seven, I noticed my mother's belly getting a little bigger and a little bigger, and finally I said something to her. And she says, well, I'm going to have a baby. Well, this did not please me at all because I was the spoiled, rotten brat, and everybody loved me, and I was going to have to share with this child. And because we lived in a small house and the war was going on, my father was a manufacturer, and he invented Sansa Belt and the Eisenhower jacket. So the Army proceeded to have him do all their work for them, which brought in a lot of money, which we had never had before. So we moved from South Dallas to our little area into Highland Park, Texas, which is the area. And I didn't know that we were different, except we moved in December. And I remember coming out of school and coming home and crying to my mom and dad. And they said, well, what, what in the world is wrong with you? I said, why do we have the only dark house on the street? 
And they go, well, because we don't celebrate Christmas. And I go, well, why not? And so they explained it to me, trust me. And that's when I began to feel different, less than, not a part of. I went all through the school districts, and there were only seven of us Jewish kids in the school. So we banded together. And my conception of God started when I was 11 years old. Now, I know my mom did not intend to give me this concept of my higher power, but she did. You know, I I know some of you in here will remember Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. I know you will remember that we had movie theaters downtown for a quarter. And it was a beautiful spring day, and my girlfriend, Frances Leach, and I decided we just couldn't go to school that Friday. It was just too beautiful of a day. So we knew that Gene Kelly was playing Singing in the Rain at the Majestic downtown Dallas. So we got on the other bus, and we went downtown to see Singing in the Rain. Well, we really weren't quite clever and smart enough to know that we hadn't been there long enough for us to get from our school to my daddy's factory. We just kind of wandered in thinking he'd think how nice it was that we went all the way downtown for him to bring us home. Duh. We walk in that factory, and he's looking at us, and that foot is going. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. And he said, yes, ma'am, you two have been caught. We are going home right now. The school called your mother and Aunt Frances has been worried to death that you two were kidnapped. But they assured us that if we went to the Majestic Theater on this beautiful spring day, we'd see all the absentees. And that's where we were. So we walked in that house. Now, my mother had a hairbrush that hurt badly. I was ready for it. And if she didn't wipe me here, she wiped me here. And I was ready for this hairbrush. And she said to me, I, I am not going to punish you. I'm not going to punish either one of you. God will punish you. Oh, okay. So I go in, no dinner, in my room, shut the door, put my little music on, went to sleep. About 11.30, the phone rang. Mother woke me up. She says, it's Frances. I said, what happened? She says, she's on the phone. She just talked to me, and my mother was crying. I said, Frances, what is it? She goes, I need to talk to your mother again. Put her back on the phone. She said, Aunt Evelyn, why did God have to punish me so bad? And Mother said, well, what's wrong? She said, I have an acute attack appendicitis, and they're going to do surgery on me. Well, my mother felt terrible. But my punishment was every day thereafter for 10 days while Frances was in that hospital, I had to get her homework, get on the bus, go to the hospital, get her other homework, take it back to school, and that, that was quite a punishment for me. That's where I got my concept of God. Also, we read only out of the Old Testament. God was not very forgiving in the Old Testament. Boils, frogs, you know, God. So my concept of my higher power or my misunderstanding of my God chose me that I just had nothing to do with him. He didn't know where I was anyway. And I sure wasn't going to call on him to give me frogs and boils and all that stuff. So I just kind of went about my life the way most kids do, teenagers. I want to tell you, though, I very much respected my father. As long as my father was alive, whatever my father said I was to do, I did. 
I remember as a child, my grandparents lived in Houston. They used to put me on the Zephyr. I know some of y'all remember the wonderful trains we used to ride. And I'd go to Houston where my other grandparents lived who were even more orthodox than my other parents. And we'd get off, I'd get off and I'd go to the holidays with them, the Jewish holidays. And this is where I really felt less than because you never walked with the man, you walked behind them. You never sat downstairs, you were upstairs with the curtain drawn because you were a distraction. Well, that doesn't do much for yourself, you know, it just doesn't. But I have to say that they do treat, that the women were treated like princesses. We were not mistreated. We just were not important when it came into the Jewish religion. Now, it has changed today. There even are Jewish rabbi women. So it has changed, but I'm just talking about what I went through. And that's my concept of my religion, what I went through, the dietary laws, who you could date, who you couldn't, where you could go, blah, 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 blah. So I just went on about my business, and I I was very good in school in gymnastics, dance, and English. I am the only girl who ever graduated Highland Park High School without having to take geometry. It took me five years to get out of algebra. And they just went, let the poor girl go. She's going to be a dancer anyway. She doesn't need to know geometry. So. So there we went, and I went all through high school and did, you know, what all kids do, and it was time to go to college. And I told my father that I wanted to go to this certain school in New York and become a ballerina and dance with the Dallas Ballet. And my father said, absolutely not. Jewish girls don't do that. You go to school, you get an MRS degree, you get married, you have children, and you stay home. I go, an MRS degree? He says, spell it, Barbara. Mrs. I said, okay. Okay, my daddy said so. That was okay. And he said, I'd like you to go to Texas. And I said, I'd really like to go to Oklahoma University. I had a cousin that went there, and she loved it. And I wanted to go somewhere different and meet different people. And he said, okay. And I went there, and I was there a year, and they did not like the person that I chose. So guess what? I was not allowed to go back to school, and I was not allowed to see him. Now, you got to realize, I'm 20, almost 21 years old, and I'm still yes sir and no sir. I come back home. I get a job. I do not go into an apartment like you all would do today or do it. I stayed at home, and I fell in love with the boy that I had known most of my life but didn't really know. He lived around the corner from me, and his name was Elliot Wolder, and he was a wonderful man. He was just boring. He wasn't exciting like all you miracles in here. He was he was a good guy. And so we started off our little married life and his mother had a beautiful store called Fran's Intimate Apparel. And I knew that one day when my kids grew up, I would inherit this beautiful lingerie store. And I had my life just there it was. Wrong. Now I am Married a year, and everybody's walking up to me and putting their hand on my little belly and going, well, well, well. Every month it was no, no, no. Now I'm feeling really less than because all my friends married long before me. All of them had children. All of them are home doing what nice Jewish girls do. And I'm working at Friends Intimate Apparel, worrying myself to death because I'm not getting pregnant. 
Finally, after two and a half, three years, I said to Elliot, would it be okay if we adopted a child? And he said, what a great idea. I've heard once you adopt a kid, you relax and you have your own. I said, great. So we went then to my cousin. This You could do this then. I don't know if you can today. He was an attorney. He knew a doctor who was had a girl who was going to have a baby. She couldn't keep the baby. And it would cost such and such amount of money. And the baby would be born July the, the, the 21st. And we thought that was excellent. The 21st came, the 22nd came, and they called and said, you can come pick up the baby. Baby's born, it's a boy, healthy, but we want to talk to you when you get here. I thought, well, maybe he doesn't have an arm or whatever. Whatever it was, we were going to take this child. So we go to the hospital, and the doctor and the nurse came out, and they said to us, Barbara, and we just want to tell you and Elliot that this child was born with alcohol on his breath. His mother is an addict, and his father was in prison, and you do not have to take this child. And I go, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. I said, environment will be everything. My parents, and we will love this child through everything. Wrong again. I adopt an alcohol syndrome child. Now, I didn't know this, and as Saul was growing up, we just thought he was hyperactive, dyslexic, this, that. We had him to every shrink, every child psychiatrist, every private school. Nothing worked for this child. This child absolutely had no conscience, could not do anything except get in trouble. And his drug of choice at that time in his young life was food. I actually chained my refrigerator at night so he could not get into it. Also, in the meantime, after three, I'll go back a little bit. After three years, I adopted my second child, Lori, who is the love of my life. And she was in a Catholic home with the Jewish parents, and they only knew one Jewish person. That was my cousin Robert. And they called him, and he said, my cousin in Dallas will take anything. I'll call her. <laughs> so this is the truth. So we went and got Lori. Now, Lori was, was is, and will always be just a good kid. Saul, at 14, was six foot four and 290 pounds on his way up. And he didn't like some of the things that I had to say to him. So the last day I remember him living in our little apartment was him picking me up and putting me through a wall. Now, I was going with a big guy. He was a trucker, and his name was Mr. Brawley, and he was six seven. And he came in and finished off the wall with Saul. And I called my ex-husband because Elliot and I had divorced because my father had passed away very suddenly. And I, this is where the story changes. When my father died, when Saul was six and Lori was three, I felt a freedom I have never felt. I ate bacon, (laughs) pork chops. I mean, I shellfish, which I love. I did every dated Italians. Oh my God! I just was a bad, bad girl. But you know, my father was gone, and this was the first freedom I had at that age. So poor Elliot. I just came home and told him one day, I don't want to be married to you anymore. You're boring. So I took my kids, and off we went. And now we're at Saul being 14, and I called Elliot. He was remarried. And I said, I really can't handle this child anymore, and it isn't fair to Lori. We're scared of him. 
He said, well, I I really can't just take him. I said, well, then I'll call the state of Texas because I already called them, and I can give this child back. He goes, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can, and yes, I will, because I can't deal with this anymore. He said, okay. And he came and got Saul, but he didn't take him to his house. He took him to his mother and father's house, and they nearly enabled my son to death because at the age of 22, he was 515 pounds. Now, I had not had anything to do with him since then. He really didn't like me at all, period and paragraph. So we really never saw each other, and I saw him one time like that, and it, was, it just broke my heart. So I just chose not to see him anymore. This was before Al-Anon. And, and we go about our life, and Saul, you know, lived with them, and Lori and I lived in a little apartment, and Lori was getting ready to graduate high school, and her daddy asked her if she'd come live with him, and he'd give her a new car. And so Lori goes, God, Mom, a new car, I can live with Dad and go to college, because, you know, Lori and I were struggling. To make ends meet, I was—I had a business in retail. I must have made maybe $600 a month. And whatever she made, we put it together. We pooled our money. We worked together. But she said, I really want to do this. And I said, okay. However, Lori, if you leave, I can't keep this apartment. I can't afford two bedrooms. I'm going to move to the best part of town in the cheapest apartment I can find and get a job. And she goes, fine, Mom. I'll be fine. So off I go, and I find this little efficiency, one room. And I said to her again, remember, you cannot come back to live here if this is your decision. She goes, that's fine, Mom. I'll be fine. I move there. I get a, the best job I could find was in the best dress shop in Dallas in North, North Park. And I'm there for about a year. Lori calls. She wants to come home. I said, Lori, honey, I'm sorry. There's no room here for you. Now, this is in January of 1984, and this is when it gets good. This is when I meet my Prince Charming. Now, I'm working, and it's January the 26th. It is my birthday. And I know y'all would go out and get drunk, but I wanted to go eat fried chicken. (laughs) So, So my girlfriend that worked with me, we went down to Morrison's Cafeteria in the mall, and I am got my little tray, and I see this pile of fried chicken. Ooh, I want four pieces. Give me four pieces. They pile it on. I get sweet potatoes. I mean, I was just going to heck with myself. And I'm going down the aisle, and I look over and over there, and I see this really cute guy with big dimples and this three-piece suit and tie, and he is so cute. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me. And I do my little tray, and I pay, and I go sit down. My girlfriend comes and sits down, and I said to her, he's going to come over and talk to me. She goes, no, you haven't been out with a guy in years. What in the world is wrong with you? I said, well, he is going to come over. And I look up, and there he is, and he goes, Hi, I'm Jane McCorkle from Tampa, Florida. Don't I know you? I go, no, you don't. But I'm Barbara Jenico, and I work right down the way here at Leslie's. And I, let me give you my card. And I gave him my card, and my girlfriend's like, 
And I go back to work, and about an hour later, the phone rings, and it's Jay, and he'd like to take me to dinner. And I said, I would love to go with you, but I'm going out with the girls tonight. Because I know y'all do the shag or something like that here. We do the push in Texas. And so we used to go to a club where I didn't have to have a date. I could just go drive there, dance, come home, be by myself. It was wonderful. I said, no, we're going to do that. But tomorrow night, I work late, and I get an hour and a half for dinner, and there's a little place called the French Crepery, and it's wonderful, and he loves crepes. I said, and you could come there if you can, and we could visit and get to know each other. Well, that's all it took. It was love first sight. It was wonderful. He came, got me, and we went to the restaurant, and I I don't think I ate a bite, and I just And we talked, and we visited, and we talked, and we visited, and now comes the real fun part. We're we're leaving. We're going down the mall. I'm going back to work, and Jay says, excuse me, would you do me a big favor? And I said, well, it just depends. What is that? He says, would you take your shoe off? I go, huh? Excuse me. He said, well, at least he didn't ask me to take my dress off. So. (laughs) So I took my shoe off, and he looked down at my foot, and he goes, he says, thank God your second toe isn't bigger than your big toe. Because if it was, I'd have never taken you out again. And I went, what? It's the truth. He has a foot fetish, and if that happens, you're out of luck, girls. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I was lucky. So now we're having this long-distance little romance, and... uh and I'm really, really in love with Jay, and I think he feels the same. And and he's traveling the circuit. He did seminars for real estate, and he was everywhere traveling. And here I am struggling in Dallas all by myself. Poor Barbara. Poor, poor thing. And he's having such a good time. First class, five-star hotels, limos, you know, wow. And he calls me one day, and he goes, how would you like to come and meet me at Disney World? Oh, my God. He really is my Prince Charming. I'd never been to Disney World. And so he, he sent me the tickets, and I flew into Orlando, and so help me. I walk into the airport thing, and there's this banner from one end to the other that says, Florida and Jay welcomes Barbara Jenico. He had a dozen yellow roses for the Yellow Rose of Texas. I mean, come on. <laughs> How can you not love this? Now, we were, you know, I had been with him several times, and he never drank. Now, I had no idea he had just come out of rehab and was sober six months. No idea. And this wasn't his first rehab either, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm thinking, what a wuss. He won't even have a drink. And he's looking at me like, why are you wasting that drink? Well, I've had all I want, huh? So we're in Disney, and it was a beautiful time. I mean, we had an absolutely fabulous time. And so the night before I left, we were up at this club, and I said to him, Jay, I really can't do this anymore. I said, we really need to make a commitment to one another because you're here, and I'm there, and it's just too hard, and I just can't do this anymore. So if you don't want to make a commitment to me, then I'm going to go home, and I'm enjoying dating. I'm going to date. He goes, no, that's fine. I will make a commitment. He says, as a matter of fact, why don't you go back home and quit your job 
and come on the road with me. I'll pay you twice, three times as much as you're making every week. I said, oh, oh Katie, bar the door. I was gone. I, I called my daughter. I left my car there. I gave her the keys to my little efficiency. I took my one little credit card and off I went on the adventure of my life. And it still is the adventure. It is. Now, before before I get into our traveling, when we were in Disney World, this is what Jay tells in his story, we went into the Japanese restaurant to eat sushi and stuff, and I love plum wine. You don't drink a lot because it's very rich, so you just get a glass. Anyway, we, I said to him, Jay, have you ever had plum wine? Now, he's sober six months, and I don't know this. He goes, you know, I have never had plum wine. <laughs> I said, well, why don't we just have a glass together? He says, what a good idea. (laughs) Now, he had that one glass of plum wine. He drove me to the airport. And in his story, he says he stopped at the ABC liquor store and bought a bottle of vodka and never made it back to Lakeland. That was down, just like that, from one little glass. And I had no idea. There I am packing up and going to meet this drunk. (laughs) It's wonderful. I'm in heaven. And it was wonderful because he really only tied him on on a weekend because he really was a busy man. Now, Jay worked 20 hours a week, and I worked 60. But he needed those drinks on the weekend to relax. And after a while, it got very obvious. Now, I cannot tell you I married him thinking he was a sober human being. I knew Jay had a problem with alcohol. But you see, I'd never been around alcoholics, so I didn't know what an alcoholic was. So I just thought, well, he just drinks a little too much. I'll change that. Thank you, God, for Al-Anon. So we, we, we traveled. We did. He drank. It got worse. It got worse. It got worse. He finally doesn't have a job. Now we're back in Tampa. We owned a little place. We lost it to a foreclosure. Now we're renting it. Now the car is, my car is gone. Now we're down to one car. Now it's getting bad. Now it's almost our first anniversary. Now it's really getting bad. Now on our first anniversary, my beautiful husband is outside our little condominium in his pajamas with a loaded gun. He is going to kill himself. Now my brother, who is the first alcoholic in my life, who I've made amends to, but I I don't like my brother very much. You know, I don't have to like him. I have to love him. He's a child of God, but thank God he lives in Dallas and I live in Tampa. He was there, thank God he was there, and I called him, and he came down, and somehow or another, being an alcoholic himself, he finagled the gun away from Jay. He took the bullets out and gave the gun back to him. Now, this had been going on for quite a while, and for the last three weeks before our anniversary, I really didn't come out of my house. I really didn't care if I combed my hair, I'd put on makeup. I didn't really care about anything. I couldn't call my family because I didn't want to embarrass them. You know, didn't bother about me. I just, you know, we think about everybody else but us. So I am stuffing all this, and I can't sleep at night. And I go to this little doctor, and he gives me five five milligram Valium. That's what he gave me. Now, this is like we were married on the 25th. Like on the 26th, Jay snapped out of his little depression. And he was having all his druggy friends and drug dealers over for a party. 
Woo! I'm so excited, you know. So now the house is filling up this little place, and they've got lines and this and red pills and marijuana and alcohol and all this, and I'm watching all this, and I, I start freaking out. And this is what I said. This is not what Jay heard. This is what I said. I'm going into the bathroom. I'm going to take a Valium. I'm going to clean my face. I'm going to go to bed. He heard I'm going in there and I'm going to kill myself. I'm oblivious to this. I'm happy to get away from all these wonderful friends of Jay's. And I'm in the bathroom and I'm standing there deciding on do I want to take a shower or bath. That's how I thought then. And all of a sudden, the door of the bathroom is off the hinges. And I'm going, what in the world? And there's two little medics running in there. And they're strapping this stuff on me, and they're carrying me out. And I go, what the hell are you doing? And they go, your husband called 911 and said you are committing suicide in the bathroom, and we're taking you for 72-hour observation. And I go, you're kidding. And they go, we are not kidding you. And they took me away screaming, crying, kicking to the hospital. And in the emergency room, they lay me down. They drew all this blood out of me. They x-rayed my chest. And I kept saying to them, y'all, you have the wrong person. (laughs) By the way, Jay did not come with me. He had company in the house. I'm laying there, and they're doing all this, and this is just, I just can't believe this is even happening to me. And it's about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm hungry. And I said to the little intern taking care of me, is there anything here to eat? And he goes, I don't know anybody suicidal that's hungry. He said, but my wife brought me a tuna sandwich, and I'd be happy to share it with you. So I'm sitting on the edge of this gurney before they take me up for 72 hours, and I'm eating the sandwich with him, and the doors to the emergency room open. They go, and in my Prince Charming staggers. I just want to see if you're okay. Came to bring you home. I said, you are never coming back into that house. We have already called from the hospital. Your brother Chuck is meeting you in, in wherever in South Carolina, Lexington. You are gone. You are never welcome back in this house again. I don't ever want to see you again. Okay. So he continues on drinking. See, upgraded to first class so he could drink all the way there. What happened from there is his story, not mine. What happened to me was the next day my brother who I don't really like, but I respect, took me to my first Al-Anon meeting. Thank you, God. It saved my life. Literally saved my life. And I walked in there, and my sponsor today of 21, almost 22 years, sat up there and said, Oh, I am so happy to be married to an alcoholic. So I got up and left. Not going to stay there with a bunch of crazy women. They're all laughing and hugging and having a great time, and I look like the wrath of God, you know. So I called the answering service back, and Shirley said, you have to go back to that meeting, and you have to talk to that lady. I had to, I had to, I had to, so I did. So I went back. I walked up to Mary Ellen, and she explained, I'm sorry I didn't say recovering alcoholic. There is a difference, Barbara. And I said to her, 
I heard I need a sponsor. Will you be my sponsor? And she said, I would love to. And I was on my way to freedom. I can, I will only really want to talk about solutions. I mean, you've heard our horror stories. And, and so I, w- I thought that when he got sober, the world was going to be roses. <laughs> Wrong. The first 18 months of his recovery was worse than his drinking. He couldn't get a job. It was my fault. He couldn't do this. It was my fault. He couldn't do that. Everything was my fault. Period. And he had a sponsor that told him, don't drink and go to meetings. And that's what he did. He didn't do a step. He just went to meetings and didn't drink. That doesn't work. Finally, finally, he found a sponsor named Chuck, who used to sit there like this. He was the most serene, spiritual man I have ever met. And he told Jay, only God can separate two people properly. He said, how long did you drink with her? And Jay said, two years. He says, well, you have six more months. You think you can make it sober with her six months? And Jay thought to himself, I can do anything to get rid of her for six months. So Chuck told him a few more things, and I'm in bed, and I'm propped up, and I'm happy watching television because he's got a real sponsor now, and he's going to work the steps. And he walks in, and he says to me, I forgive you for not being the person I thought you were. (laughs) What? I came out of that bed, and it was World War III. (laughs) I said to him, you know, this isn't working. This is not going to work. We can't make it. I said, we're going to have to go to this person, this, I don't know what you call her. She separates two people. She has you sit and talk. She's an attorney, and then she takes care of everything. I remember going in there. We sat. He sat over there. I sat over here. I sat with a chair with the Kleenex. And I started immediately crying. She started asking me questions. Jay's sitting over in this big chair writing. She says to him, she's a psychiatrist. She says to him, Mr. McCorkle, what are you doing? You're taking notes for you, your attorney, your doctor. What are you doing? He says, I'm just taking notes. She says, I'm the only note taker here today. I'm the one doing the notes. You can put your pen and pencil away. I'm doing this. And he started sharing. And the atmosphere changed. Now, I don't know if this is a spiritual awakening. We don't know what this was. But we got in the car to go home to separate. And we got in the car and we just hugged each other. And we realized we really still loved each other. And that if I did Al-Anon and he did AA, we'd be all right. Well, Mary Ellen and Kathy came from Virginia. And in Virginia, they had couples meetings. Now, we had four couples in the beginning. We met every Saturday, and whosever house we were at, we cooked. And we'd have discussions as couples. It wasn't an official AA, Al-Anon. It was just a bunch of friends who could get together and share experience, strength, and hope. If we were having a problem, what they would have done, what they did, how it worked for them. And this is what we did. We just kept doing this until it got to 28 people. And people didn't have a house big enough for us to all meet. And then it got down to once a month. And then it got down to we don't do it anymore. But it was such a wonderful experience. And it helped me grow so much. Now, I work very hard for Al-Anon. I love this program. It has literally saved my life. 
What it's doing for me today is helping me be my 93-year-old mother's mother. Because in the last two Easter's, she has fallen and broken each hip. She's now in a nursing home, and I'm learning patience, tolerance, and how to be a really good daughter. She introduces me as her mother, by the way, to everybody. She's a wonderful lady. She's in a little wheelchair. She maneuvers herself around, and she is absolutely wonderful. She really is. She and I had problems for years, but... She's a wonderful old lady, and I I hope I have the courage she has when I'm that age. Now, I'm going to share something with you I only shared back at Blackstone because someone else shared something very intimate. And it's not easy for me to say this, but this year, my ex-husband, who I really loved, I wasn't in love with Elliot, I loved him. He died. And I was very, very, very emotionally upset over this. However, my daughter wanted me to come to the funeral, but he was married, and he had a child, and they were there. And I asked my friends in Al-Anon what they would do, not to tell me what to do. And they said, in their opinion, it wasn't my place to be there. And my daughter got pretty angry with me, but that was okay. I did not go. We sent flowers, and I felt very bad that he had passed away so young, because to me, 67 years old is very young. And then three weeks later, the phone rang, and my son-in-law said, We want to tell you Saul died. That was my son. I had absolutely no feeling. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel. Years ago, I had gone to Dallas on a plane to make amends to Saul, who had gone from not being able to eat to cocaine, to getting caught, to going to prison, and I went there to make an amend to him. He did not accept it. He called me everything. And I called my sponsor and Jay. I was so upset. And they said, the amend is for you, not him. You did it. Now close that door. I closed the door. And I called Mary Ellen when this happened. And I go, I am one cold-hearted person. I don't feel anything. She goes, well, you can't make up a feeling. It's perfectly all right. You're not a bad person, Barbara. You just made your amend, and you closed that door, and that part of your life is over. That part with Elliot's over. It's over. What a relief to have such wise people in these rooms. I mean, I, I just, I can't thank Betty enough for asking. I was so scared. This is something that is, I'm just not used to doing. I don't think al tell their stories like AA does all the time. And we don't talk an hour, an hour and ten minutes. We talk till we're through talking. That's what I've been told. That you know, I always tell everybody, I can't talk for an hour. I can't even talk for forty-five minutes. They said you talk as long as you need to talk. You say whatever God says for you to say, and then you are through. So I think I've told you just about everything about me you need to know. There's some things I don't want you to know. He'll tell you about those later. And I know it's early, but I'm so happy that I did this. This was such growth for me to get up here in front of all of you wonderful people. And thank you so much for coming here on a Saturday afternoon to see me. Thank you so much.
thank you, Barbara, for sharing. And, and they don't mind getting out early. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a gift from the committee for thank being you. here, and we so, hope you enjoy that. Okay. If you'll give us just a second, we'll come down. But it may take just the morning second. But okay. we're going, oh, she's going to let my friend. Okay.